Welcome to Eating in Isolation, a talk show about mental health in the food industry. I'm Sue Chan. I'm Sarah Solomon. So today we have Chris Fisher on the show. Chris is a longtime friend. Uh, many, many years ago at an event that we did together. And when we first announced the podcast, Chris wrote in immediately wanting to share his story about finding out that he has autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. And we're so glad that he did because it's not part of the general conversation today. And we really want it to be. We want it to be destigmatized and understood. It is one of the most misunderstood, underfunded, under-resourced cognitive disorders. So we are really excited that we have this opportunity to speak with him and hear his story and hopefully enlighten people who are listening. So Chris Fisher is a chef, a James Beard Media award-winning cookbook author, and a farmer. While he currently lives in New York City with his wife, Amy Schumer, and their son, Gene, Chris spent his culinary career in kitchens across New York, London, Martha's Vineyard, where he grew up. And until 2018, he ran his farm's Beetlebung Farm, a family-owned regenerative farm in Martha's Vineyard. And this work inspired his 2015 cookbook, Beetlebung Farm Cookbook, for which he won a James Beard Award in American Cooking. He's also worked as the executive chef at Beach Plum Inn on Martha's Vineyard for two years, where he once cooked for the Obamas. And then over the last year during COVID, him and Amy recorded and released a Food Network cooking show called Amy Schumer Learns to Cook. Wow, Chris, that is quite the resume. (laughs) I'm tired hearing about it. (laughs) And that cooking show is hilarious. It's so cute. Um, It was such a refreshing thing to watch during COVID because one, I feel like, you know, a lot of people across America were essentially doing what you were doing in the show, right? Cooking for your nuclear family, calling friends, catching up with them and, you know, getting a little weird. So it was (laughs) fun to kind of, peek into your guys' lives and, and watch you guys do what a lot of us were also doing. We tried to bring some joy to that time. <laughs> Such a tedious time and bringing some enthusiasm to, to that time together was important for us too. Yeah, I, I guess my question is, did Amy actually learn how to cook by the end? I would say she became a much better cook and she <laughs> she appreciates cooking in a new way, I believe. And she does cook a lot more frequently since the show. She's a dedicated student, so... <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're never done learning how to cook. In 2019, so you were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Can you tell the audience a little bit about how you came to that realization? My wife was the person that really initiated the conversation, basically through observations of my behavior and my patterns and my communication skills or lack of communication skills you know, for the preservation of our relationship, wanted to figure out how to provide the best tools for for us to thrive. And so she did some research and and poked around online and, and learned about autism spectrum disorder. And I took some online tests, which pointed in the direction that I was on the spectrum. And then um, we tried to find professionals in the industry that worked with adults in that field. And that took a little bit of effort, but I um, 
then took a clinical evaluation and have been working with a great therapist who specializes in essentially working with people uh, with ASD. And since 2018, I guess the last two years, I've been doing um, some really focused and wonderful work with her. Her name is Dr. Kimberly Gilbert, and she uh, works at Hofstra. And we spend a lot of time talking about life and <laughs> how my mm-hmm. brain works. It's a it's a complicated subject, as we'll get into, and I'd love to hear Sarah's thoughts on what she knows about autism because I'm I actually just had therapy with Dr. Gilbert before this and was asking some very basic questions because mm-hmm. I'm I'm still trying to understand what it means. As a matter of fact, autism is the fastest growing developmental disorder, yet the most underfunded. So it's no surprise that most of us don't know very much about it. And hopefully that is beginning to change. And so autism is defined by the National Autism Association as a bioneurological developmental disability, which impacts the normal development of the brain in cognitive functioning and social interaction and communication skills. And That typically results in difficulty with social interaction and verbal and nonverbal communication, as well as activities in leisure or play. The symptoms are usually visible before the age of three. The most interesting piece is that autism varies greatly from person to person. No two people with autism are alike, which I love. (laughs) Um, And I understand that that would make you you much more curious about what makes it unique to you and to others. And it's quite a broad spectrum. Because it's so unique, how does it manifest in you personally? Well, one thing, I think the fact that I grew up in a very rural and isolated and small community on Martha's Vineyard, rural. I think a lot of the social deficiencies I I have were compounded because if you were out playing in the woods by yourself, that was basically your only option unless you were playing with your siblings. So it was like that isolated upbringing normalized the world to me and, and I was alone a lot. So um, I would say I fixate on problem solving, sort of spend most of my day identifying problems, which are not necessarily a negative thing, and then um, organizing my world around solving them. So Yeah. No, I'm curious when you say you focus on problems, but they're not necessarily negative, do you mean that you'll see a problem in something? No, it's like I create a long list of tasks in my head, which are based on my family's needs in this in my current situation. And and then I essentially try to figure out in a very focused way how to achieve them all in the yeah in the most efficient way. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I sort of fixate on that. And I think that that lends itself to a very good employee and a good a good approach to work, which is like, I don't know how other people approach work. But when I take on a job, I think I always have the tendency to sort of obsess, you know, mm-hmm. it, it takes over my life. And so when I was doing all of the crazy things that Sue listed, you know, I was all in on work and I had a very imbalanced uh, rest of my life, which is typical of many people that work in restaurants because you work long, odd hours. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing when it comes to accomplishing a task. When we spoke the other day, Sue, you said, you know, it's like restaurants are so chaotic. But for me, when I 
eventually figured out how they worked, you know, there was an element of logical control that you could sort of, I could create in my mind to create all these systems. And most of the time I would learn a system that was taught to me in a situation and sort of get that down. And then I eventually would change the system to work for my mind. And then that would act most often would create a more efficient, better system, which then made me a better employee or a better mm better at my job, if that makes sense. <laughs> About kitchens being chaotic, I feel like the environment itself is chaotic, but the skill set that you need to have is tunnel vision, right? Because you have to be focused on the thing that you know, you're know you on the line doing that evening and you have to be super organized and you have to have systems and you have to, because you're doing, it's a re- very repetitive thing throughout the night, right? Whether you're on the grill station or whatnot, it's it's the same thing over and over and over again. And it almost seems like ASD gave you superpowers to be really good at that. I wouldn't say superpowers. I would say it, it's a gift in that I think from my understanding of of ASD also is that there is some clumsiness involved, some physical clumsiness, which I'm a very coordinated person, but I think when I learn something initially, I can be very clumsy. And I I had that in kitchens. But I think over time, I would almost like choreograph, you both choreograph your station and your, you know, your tasks, but you also choreograph then the evening. And so it's a to make it work. It's a very complicated and complex thing that you're trying to do, but it is based on repetition. And it's also based on time. So, you know, like, I worked in a really busy pasta restaurant and everything was was done on a timer system and there was multiple timers and it you know you had to coordinate the the pickups in a really complicated way and again I think I was really bad at it initially but I progressed very quickly and I can't quite explain why but I I could create my own systems with the timers that that allowed me to do my job faster essentially mm. so I learned their system and then I modified it I don't know if they knew that I modified it but I did in my own way that I could then do my job better I'm curious because on some level I can relate Chris sometimes my brain also can do a I can go into problem solving mode and be thinking ahead on what needs to get done and if something gets in the way of that <laughs> I can often get agitated. And it sounds like that's not what happens for you. Like you actually feel calm in finding that rhythm and that it doesn't easily get interrupted. Is that is that accurate? I think it is. I was um, talking to my therapist and I also spoke to a friend to try to get some context about my behavior. And, you know, there's an optimism to my approach that is born from born from the fact that I lived in a very isolated area and everything I did, you know, you don't have access to a lot of things when you live in the middle of nowhere. And so you, if something breaks, you have to fix it. And if something goes wrong, you don't really, I mean, depending on the circumstance, you don't have the option to let it be broken. And let's say you're operating a restaurant in the middle of that isolated place and a farm, then everything's broken all the time. So, and I used to say this in the restaurant that I ran on Martha's Vineyard, I, you know, I don't want problems. I want solutions. So I I just feel like it, there's like a logical and tactical approach, but you have to be flexible. I feel like my success came from a certain amount of flexibility when it comes to problem solving, because you can only do the best that you can. (laughs) Not that I understood that at the time, but 
I was acting on it. If that makes sense, you know, that you wouldn't get agitated or necessarily lose your temper as often if you, there's a willingness for flexibility and an understanding of, you know, you have a goal and we got to roll with the punches. And that's not to say that there wasn't, you know, anger or a temper that stemmed from other things, other deficiencies that I did have. And I think one of the things that I've learned through the therapy and the work that I've done is that I was, you know, a poor communicator and I was a, a poor communicator when it came to my own emotions and understanding them and explaining them. And because I was also very driven, I was asking a lot of the people around me. And so I also wouldn't understand uh, why certain people didn't, you know, see the work that we were doing as, as important. So there was anger that came from not being able to explain myself properly or, or feel understood, but not really being able to, or not being like as I think honest as I thought I was being. So certainly growing up feeling isolated or not feeling isolated, but actually being isolated, being in a rural area. I was the only kid in my fourth grade class. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> in a two room schoolhouse. Wow. There was nine kids in the school <clears throat> and I was related to four of them, I think. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So with that, certainly um, not a ton of social interaction in general, but then this, you know, not having a language for your feelings, not even understanding your feelings, how much of that was shaped from your family and growing up? I grew up in New England. And so the New England way, as I understood it, was a very stoic approach to life and to work. And everybody worked a lot. And whether it was what they did to make a living or you worked in your garden or you whatever you were doing, there was always a product a productivity to it. And so I was taught that you just kind of kept working and you buried any necessary needs you might might have. And so I think that that certainly just compounded on the fact that it, it's my nature to be somewhat shy and somewhat not interested in being the loudest person in the room or the, the center of attention. And so, you know, you just mentioned that you better understood why you acted the way you did in a professional setting. But I'm curious if you started seeing why you were acting the way you were in your personal life or in your love life or what that revelation was after you were diagnosed. I think like I I was all in in that world and whatever restaurant or project I was into took over my life and I then took on you know at, at one point when I took on a restaurant then I took on a farm it was farming in the morning going to the restaurant going back to the farm going to the restaurant working all night so I was it was the most important thing to me and I'm not exactly sure why I think I was just I was driven by something, you know, that created a very imbalanced personal life. And it created a lot of fractured relationships. I, I wasn't a good partner because I was not ever there. I don't think anybody that works in a restaurant, you're just not available to your partner. And so I look back and see somebody that was trying to achieve a lot 
in some professional settings or these opportunities and also trying to have uh, relationships and, and have friendships and mentorships. And, and I think I did the best I could, but I certainly, I didn't follow through as a good partner. And that's why all of the relationships ended up, you know, not working out. And so I don't think I would have met Amy or found the energy or the ability to have a relationship and have a healthy functioning relationship if I was still working in restaurants, Mm -hmm. sadly. So it it did certainly feel like I needed to make a choice and I'm lucky that I had the option to. Yeah. It's, Sounds like it's really difficult to, especially in this field, multitask and to have enough space for your drive and your work and your focus, as well as interpersonal relationships on a deeply intimate level. It makes it quite interesting that when you got into a serious intimate relationship with Amy, your wife, that this was the first time you had someone reflecting back to you something that they were seeing that felt different or that they didn't understand. Yeah, that's accurate. It's interesting because those attributes we talked about earlier of stoicism and putting your head down and just working. And and that was the culture that I saw in restaurants. And I think that that also brings like the culture of the restaurants that I was in was very devoid of being vulnerable because Mm -hmm. I think if you showed any vulnerability, that was the weakness, which then could be somehow exploited in the very competitive area. So I hope that that has shifted and I hope that that was unique to the restaurants that I was working in, but it would have been so great to um, have been able to uh, support my coworkers, be supported by them in a way that was a bit more constructive and positive than mm-hmm. what we did, which is what the restaurant culture is, is, you know, staying up really late and drinking a lot <laughs> and trying to figure out how to sleep. Yeah. Isn't it so insane that so many of us across the world and all the restaurants across the world, that culture is so pervasive. It's it's still so mind boggling to me that we all kind of let it slide. And, you know, I, Sarah and I talk a lot about this in previous episodes, that it must just attract people who are masochists or enjoy that. And then the culture just perpetuates because, you know, no one's being held accountable. And, we're just letting it happen and enabling each other. Yeah, it's it's just really crazy that it's been allowed to happen for so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's you're asked to do so much in a restaurant depending on the restaurant's goals, you know, you're promising a lot and there's high expectations and and it's like we said it's very choreographed experience and mm-hmm. when you take pride in what you do and you want to please your customers and you want them to have a good experience and you want them to come back and um, it's not healthy. <laughs> no. I am curious, you know, if there was just a shift in exactly what you're describing, this toxic toughness, for lack of a better word, we can't be vulnerable, we can't be sensitive, we can't have feelings, we just got to power through whatever it takes, you know, suck it up. If you can't handle it, have a drink, don't go to sleep. <laughs> you know, if there was a, a fundamental shift there, and there is room for feeling, struggling, you know, leaning on each other, supporting each other in really effective and productive ways. This would, could be a, a dream industry <laughs> to, yeah. be, to be in, you know, because it already is a, an amazing world to feed people and to be creative in this way. 
because of all the factors that that go into running a restaurant in New York City, it makes everybody's margins so extremely tight. You know, every decision is this like thing that just keeps adding up on every level. And so it's really challenging in the current formula that's been created for there to be cushioning to allow for that. I mean, it's almost like you either need to be like a mom and pop one place and you have like a really present management set who maybe also you know like that that are really invested or you need to be like a really big company that can afford mm-hmm. to invest in their hr and their like you know the way that they're they're treating their employees and it's like the culture of restaurants too i think as you said masochistic the environment that is created that is really physically taxing and long hours and is hot and dangerous and what i've learned about asd is also there's thought to be like a higher pain threshold and a i could work longer hours and it didn't feel masochistic at times when i was achieving a lot professionally those were like the darkest times for me because i was struggling with my mom dying and and just like not addressing things in that area of my life and 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 all of that all the repercussions of brushing that under the rug so there is an adopted masochism to the industry but i would love to encourage you know anybody that's listening or or like still really deep in that world to like remind yourself there's really simple things that you can do to replace some of those negative behaviors like meditation or walking or exercising even though it feels like you don't have time for it they're just really simple things that i didn't really know much about well i mean i'm thinking about mental health and also meditation when i was in the industry but if you just focus your energy in those places where you really don't think you have the energy to focus it it pays itself back. <laughs> yes, without a doubt. And and sometimes I think you're on such a treadmill, you're you're in the momentum of it and as you said, Chris, you really thrived in that and needed it in order to survive and in some ways avoid some of the difficulties that were happening in your life. And when you're on that treadmill, it feels like you can't stop. And so this suggestion, stop and meditate, take a walk phone a friend, that they're these simple acts, it feels so hard to do. And it's almost like a an act of rebellion to do them. And so the more people suggest it, these simple things, the, the more people may just go, oh, I'll just give it a try. See how it goes. Well, it's the same idea as I thought. I was under the impression that as I was trying to achieve more, I needed to create an armor or a, the projection of of success and that everything's great and I can, you know, just keep on trudging on. I thought that being vulnerable and being honest about how I was feeling and what I was struggling with would have made me appear weak, which would then have created some sort of cascading series of of losses because of that. And so I just would say to people like, everything's good. I'm just doing this thing and this thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so I wish I had been more honest with my friends and my family and people I was having relationships with and poly- I was focusing my energy in so many different directions and trying to solve so many problems, but without actually looking at the, the root of all of them. Would you say that you kind of observed a difference in how you worked for other people? Because you know you worked at some of the best kitchens in the country and 
like River Cafe in London, Bobo in New York. Did you see a difference between how you worked under someone versus working for yourself? I think um, I always had the desire to please the people I worked for as best I could. So I was always striving to make sure that they wanted me to come back to work the next day. And I would go in early and I would stay late. And I was like, whether it was calculated or not, I was doing everything I could to learn more skills and learn how the whole organism worked. Um, And then when I had the opportunity to do things on my own, I would say I would have a very meandering, very logical mixed with very illogical, creative opportunities because nobody was telling me not to do those things. So I think I, I did some very out of the ordinary things and made choices, which ultimately were respected, I think, in the food world because they were, they were not the standard choices, which, you know, I was choosing to grow the food for my restaurant. I was cho- choosing to really be involved in a big way with like educating my community, my, my staff, anybody that ate at my restaurant and anybody else that wanted to listen uh, about the importance of, of sourcing your food in a, the most responsible way that you can in mindful way. So I think I had to work for a lot of people to figure out what I wanted to say. And then once I had the space to say what I wanted to say, it took me a while to figure it out. And so I guess I'm still figuring it out. And you had mentioned before that it took a long time to figure out the diagnosis. Can you just talk a little bit about that process and why it was so complicated and drawn out? One of my experiences was going up to a facility, autism research facility, sitting on in a tiny chair and a tiny desk with like a two-way mirror in a room that was clearly made for like four-year-olds. And I was like filling out what felt like an exam that they should be taking that didn't work out. I, I didn't, we didn't trust the uh, results from that. And, and um, so there's therapists that are shying away from the diagnosis. You know, there was a time when Asperger's and ASD were sort of considered the same thing, which they sort of are, but it's my understanding that people are moving away from the term Asperger's for a variety of reasons. And so we found that there were therapists that I was meeting with that either didn't have much experience diagnosing ASD in adults, didn't understand it, didn't believe in it. Mm. And then, you know, we found Dr. Gilbert and she's been uh, just a, a rock you know, part of me just wants to say, I'm sorry for the difficulty that you experienced in trying to get a diagnosis and to have anyone deny your experience or Amy's observations or to not feel like there was space for a conversation around it. It's called a disorder, but it's, as Dr. Gilbert said, it's a gift. It's, mm-hmm. it's a gift that I can understand why I'm struggling in the areas of my life that I'm struggling and why I've made the mistakes I've made because that helps you not repeat them. In the documentary, Expecting Amy, which I love, and I know that um, you and Amy both produced it, you described in one of your conversations feeling really empowered by this diagnosis. And Amy described some of her favorite qualities about you being connected to your ASD, which is just so beautiful. And if you can just elaborate more on that feeling of empowerment. I think if you are diagnosed with ASD, you have certain limitations, especially when it comes to other people's emotions, your own emotions. And so I certainly was deficient 
in that, again, for a variety of reasons, both from my upbringing and from being on the spectrum. And so it's empowering to identify them. And then it's empowering to see that there are tools that you can seek to compensate for them. And so to have those tools has has given me the ability to be vulnerable, be more honest with the people in my life and replacing bad habits with good habits and um, bad thoughts with good thoughts. And (laughs) what were some of the things that you were doing that tipped Amy off to maybe there was, I don't know, something to look into? She probably noticed that I wasn't laughing as much as I should have been, even though I was truly uh, entertained. I think that (laughs) we would have misunderstandings or disagreements. And there was one incident where I couldn't stop repeating myself. And, you know, I, I was sort of shutting down. And I think I think that was a big thing was like, I would interpret disagreements or differences of opinion or differences of perspective as something that was combative or coming from a place of anger. And so I would shut down and I wouldn't participate in conversation with end, and then it would take a long time to resolve it. And I think, you know, that was one of the motivations for her was to find some tools for her and for, you know, for both of us. And we both participated in in therapy together to work out these differences because they're not coming from a place of anything besides um, just a a different perspective. And so Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's worked. It's a work in progress as always, but it's worked. Yeah. It sounds like all of the things you're describing would kind of fall under the umbrella of slow down, slow down and listen to what's being asked or what's being expressed, slow down and be curious and ask a question, slow down and notice what's going on around you, which it is really good advice for every single one of us. The dynamic of a restaurant (laughs) is the opposite of that. And it's a confusing dynamic now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. And I can see why if I was having success in my professional life, being this emotionally void person that just keeps going and going and going and what's the next job and never stopping, I I can see why I would be really deficient when it comes to the other aspects of of emotional existence with other people. (laughs) What are some of the things that you're doing in therapy to help you socialize and relate better to others? Like routine and... Things that are not unknown are very comfortable to me. So a restaurant setting, or you open at 5 p.m., you close here, these are the things, you know, it's all, it's like you can create a routine in that. So what's challenging for me about a social situation is like I run into somebody on the street or at a party or, or something, and I have a very hard time having an off-the-cuff conversation, even if it's with my dad or if it's with an old friend, some things that I do with my therapist is if I know I'm going to see a friend in a couple of days, I'll actually tell her who this friend is. I'll talk through sort of, I find myself just the simple idea of like rehearsing a conversation before you yeah. talk to someone. I find that myself and people that I know that are also on the spectrum, the empathy comes in the form of like problem solving. I had a big family and had a lot of different responsibilities when it came to my grandparents and my mom and 
my cousins and whatever. And so I was very like surface and I would sort of like try to solve each other, other people's problems in my own way. And so I feel like, I don't know, I'm still trying to understand it. I, I think I understand what you're saying that this, when you can identify if someone else's behavior or relationship or attitude is problematic, you can maybe see it more clearly and your instinct is to try to fix it or help. I think because I've lacked emotional development in my life and I still do and I'm still playing catch up, a lot of the interactions that I have with friends in trying to understand their problems are asking very basic questions, which I think can cut to the chase very quickly. It's like I'm trying to understand something that I don't and in the process of asking these basic ideas, I think Uh, people can come to terms with what's going on with them. You're talking about being a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about being a good listener, I hope. It's true. Sometimes it's those simple questions that you can see so clearly from the outside that we're not asking ourselves. Yeah. Well, I think the work that you're doing to help destigmatize the negative connotations associated with this order is super important. And the fact that Amy is so supportive and, you know, using comedy and humor as a way to talk about a very difficult topic and having her as a supportive partner is not only extremely, I think, great for you and your journey, but I think it's just super helpful for others to really understand what you're capable of and people uh, with ASD are capable of in this world. It's very inspiring. I think the fact that disorder is associated with it, it's like, it's a weird thing. They like label high functioning. I feel like to make people feel like they're high functioning and then they label it a disorder Mm -hmm. at the same time. So it's Mm -hmm. like the idea of getting diagnosed for me was just to only positive. If somebody said to me that, and, and people do, you know, reach out now more frequently and say that they've taken the steps to be diagnosed also and, and how much, it's helped them. That's the best case scenario if, if people are, are seeking it out. And it's just about getting tools. <laughs> yes. And I just recently listened to a, a TED Talk by a woman who is a, a researcher in Australia. She's autistic and she's gotten a PhD in studying psychology and autism. And she spoke about the word disorder and being disabled to think of it as a verb that not that you are disabled or you have a disorder, but that you are disabled by your environment or society at large or the lack of resources, that it's not actually part of your identity as much as it is something lacking in us that you need to be met in this way. And I think that's a really, really important paradigm shift for us to start making. Well, I think it's it's about creating a better understanding societally for neurotypical people and people on the spectrum to understand each other. Essentially, yes. that's that's what it's all about. I think it's a great way to approach life. Actually, thinking about all this, it's like somebody said to me, "You're going to work in New York City and you're going to make three hundred dollars a week, and you're not going to be able to afford your own food, and you're going to work six or seven days a week." and 90 hours a week. And, you know, and it's like, I'm like, sign me up. And then my family's like, will you help us run this farm? Like there's an old well, all the water lines are hooked up to the same line. So if somebody's taking a shower in the house, you can't actually water your vegetables and you don't have any money to pay for it. But like here, grow some food. I'm like, 
this is this is my dream come true, you know, and like, especially with the farm and with the restaurant I ran in Martha's Vineyard, people are like, here's your problem. This is this is how you do it. This is how we've done it. So do it the same way. And I and I think that's where I ran into issues too, because I was like, I'm going to come up with new ways of doing it. And they were better and more successful. And I didn't care <laughs> that like people resented the fact that I was changing how things were done. And I, I don't know, that's part of, I think being on the spectrum too, is you have, you care about what you're doing because you put all of your focus and your energy into it, but you sort of don't care what other people think um, when it comes to, you know, and when I wrote my cookbook, like every, at every intersection, I could, you know, make an easy choice or a hard one or whatever. And I kept making these weird choices and I had a belief that it was the right one. And the publishers disagreed and the, the, the everybody sort of disagreed and it made me a sort of difficult client and a difficult person. But ultimately, you know, I got to write the book that I wanted to do and, mm. and that then gave me pride in being able to put it out to the world. Well, yeah, I think we could all use a little bit of, I don't care what everyone thinks, you know, and a little more of, I want to do what I want to do. This is important to me, or this is how I see it. It's a service but it's also an art. And so you have to like, you do have to care what people think on a certain level, but you also have to be able to communicate your own ideas and, and why they're important to you. And that's a really, as Sue knows, and you know, everything that she's done, it's, that's a really complicated formula to create. You do care, but then you, as I think a lot of the most successful chefs uh, have demonstrated that you also have to kind of just say, fuck it. I'm going to, at the same time, I have to, I'm going to express myself and mm. uh, I'm going to do these things and it's going to taste good. I think <laughs> eventually it does taste good. Do you have a closing message to those who might be dealing with a recent diagnosis or think that they have ASD? Autistic people are, you know, like you said, uh, prone to isolation, not the most social people. So mm-hmm. if you have the means beyond that, then just, you know, trying to find somebody to talk to, to really, um, to clarify where, where you, where you're at. Like you said, I mean, the role of a therapist is to spend time with their, their patient and really understand how their mind works so they can help them make positive changes. And so, yeah. And meditate. There's so much technology and so many things and so much thing, you know, everything takes your attention and it's like, it's so great to just close your eyes and just think like about anything or nothing. Chris, thank you so much. That was really inspiring and incredible. Thank you for taking the time to be vulnerable. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And um, thank you for the work you guys are doing. Wow. What an incredible interview. Sarah, if you can elaborate on some of the resources that people can look into if they're curious about autism. So Chris had mentioned a quick Google search, which there are a ton of resources online for people to educate themselves. I think that one of the best resources is autismspeaks.org to find out what symptoms are, various articles that one can read, and then practitioners who can offer treatment. And what I want to say about that, also speaking to what Chris shared, it's really important that if you suspect that you may have some ASD symptoms, or maybe your child or a loved one does, 
You want to seek out someone who can provide a neuropsych evaluation, which is something that a psychologist or a psychiatrist can provide. You also want to make sure that you're dealing with practitioners who are informed and competent in this aspect of the field. It really is quite underrepresented. Uh, and so not everyone knows about it. So we can't assume that everyone does. And you want to make sure that you are with people who you feel seen by and supported by and people who are really going to validate and understand what you're experiencing and want to be able to help. And if they can't help, they can hopefully point you in the right direction. So just really encouraging looking for those kinds of practitioners and, and resources who describe themselves as trained in treating autism spectrum disorder. That needs to be a very clear part of their training. Additionally, Chris talked about one of the skills that has been most valuable to him has been incorporating meditation as part of his daily routine. And of course, we are right on board with that and couldn't agree more. So in addition to some of the apps that are out there, which you may know about, such as Headspace, Calm, or I personally like Insight Timer, I also want to offer just one breathing exercise that can be really helpful as a way to get started. What I want you to do is get a candle and light the candle. And first and foremost, you want to sit in wide awake stance. Wide awake stance is sitting fully upright, both your feet on the ground, your hands resting comfortably in your lap. And you can put a timer on. I like to start with something really simple, three minutes. Have the candle in front of you and just let your gaze steady on the flame. It's okay for your eyes to get heavy. It's even okay for your eyes to close. The goal is just to observe the flame and notice sensations, notice temperature, and use your breath to stay focused. And while you might notice interrupting thoughts or distractions, that's okay. Observe them non-judgmentally. Take a breath and return to the flame. And that can be a practice that you can do every morning or every evening just for three minutes as a way to focus your mind, clear your mind and get centered. And it's not easy. So it's meant to be a practice and some days are going to come more naturally than others. And that's okay. That's it for today's episode of Eating in Isolation. Thanks for tuning in. Episodes out every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at Care of Chan. Email us questions and ideas at eatinginisolation at careofchan.com. To find Sarah, visit solomontherapy.com. And remember, you are not alone.